You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Dr. Svetlana Pundik. Uh, she's a stroke neurologist, and the uh, bio says that she works with patients during the first minutes to hours after they have a stroke. So, uh, Svetlana, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Oh, we're doing great. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah. So, how did you get interested in, uh, in becoming a stroke neurologist? What led you to this field? Well, so it actually started with research, being part of research on animals um, and on stroke models in animals. So before medical school, during my undergrad years, I was fortunate to be part of a laboratory, working in a laboratory that was looking at um, mechanisms of injury uh, in the brain after stroke. So... As um, as I was going through medical school, um, I thought I would keep an open mind, um, not necessarily going into neurology, but everything else kind of canceled. Um, neurology is really what I was interested in, so that's how I made choice to be um, to do residency in neurology, and um, and then further additional training in uh, with and vascular fellowship also was, a, um, again, kind of looking at other specialties, and there are many in neurology. Uh, stroke was something that always interested me. And I, I worked throughout additional work and bench research during my fellowship, but then uh, got involved in stroke rehabilitation. So I saw that you, you know, obviously the goal is to try to help someone immediately after they have a stroke if you can't prevent it. But how long, on average, does it take someone that's had a stroke to get medical care and then to see someone like you? So as a stroke neurologist, right, we we hope that patients who are suffering stroke get uh, us involved within minutes, you know, after the uh, onset of stroke. That the faster uh, the treatment is provided, the better the outcome. And, and this is using a thrombolytic or blood clot busting medication to, um, you know, uh, break up the clot, allow the blood to flow back into the brain 
the faster it happens, the better the outcomes. And then many studies that show that that's the most important treatment. So how long on average do patients take to get to see someone like you versus obviously you want it to happen right away, but how long does it take? And you know, when do you see people? A day later, um, or a week later? No. So if, if you asking me about my research, that's something different. But as a clinician, I hope to see these people right away, not days. We're talking minutes after they've had a stroke. Yeah, when so, do strokes tend to happen? Is there any particular time of day or circumstance, such as when someone's exposed to stress, or does it just seem to randomly happen to people? And yeah, they happen any time, any time of day so or night. And people wake up with strokes as well. Um, sometimes they're witness, sometimes they're not witness. What is it, um, if, if one is witnessed, what does it look like to the outside observer? And then what does it look, what does it feel like to the person having one? I know it's not a nice question. Right. So it depends on what part of the brain gets affected. Uh, most dramatic, obviously, is when there is a weakness in the arm, leg, or droopy face. Um, most drastic changes when people are unable to talk or their uh, speech and language are affected. When there is a change in vision and they can't see part of their uh, visual field or when they start seeing double. Sometimes people feel sudden onset of uh, balance problems or spinning sensation like vertigo. All those are signs and symptoms of stroke or when there's numbness, especially on one side of the body. Um, okay. Actually, unfortunately, so stroke doesn't hurt. And so many people choose to sit out to wait and see if their symptoms improve. But that's absolutely wrong decision because these minutes are so important in initiation of the treatment because there's a very short window of opportunity when we can intervene with uh, breaking up that clot and trying to reverse the stroke that's ongoing. Is a stroke um, a clot in a vessel in the head or leading to the head, or is it more of, a, of an aneurysm where a vessel, you know, breaks and ruptures and leads into the head? Right. So there are t those are two different types of strokes. So one is when there's a clot in the vessel or when the vessel is blocked. That's called ischemic stroke, and there is a, another type of stroke, and that's a majority of strokes, when um, a vessel breaks in the brain, and it's a bleeding or hemorrhagic stroke, and the approach, the treatment is different. So you obviously, it's with the ischemic stroke that try to um, open the vessel, break up the clot, and let the blood flow. Um, but with the hemorrhagic stroke, still it's important to get to the hospital right away. Yeah. What, what kind of interventions are possible if you catch someone, you know, within minutes of it happening to them? Either way. Okay. So for I intervention for ischemic stroke, when there's a blockage in the vessel, we would use thrombolytic therapy, breaking up the clot, blood clot busting medication um, uh, called CPA, or um, in the uh, recent, um, in the last few years, there have been um, additional, actually, this it, the work has been going for many years, but in the last few years, it's been demonstrated really well that we can um, 
we we can use endovascular therapy when we can go with a a little wire and stent into the vessel and open it as, with a catheterization. So kind of um, with angiogram and thrombectomy, ex- we can extract that clot from the vessel. So those are the main main inter- intervention for ischemic stroke. For hemorrhagic stroke approach is different as one is trying to identify where that aneurysm is and repair that rupture. There are different ways of doing it. You can do surgery or can also uh, do an endovascular procedures to do that. Um, sometimes there is no aneurysm, but still patient needs to be uh, monitored and observed and treated in the hospital environment, usually in an intensive care unit. And that's what improves the outcomes, ultimately. Okay. So what's your goal? Your goal is to improve the intervention techniques and apply them as early as possible to people with stroke? Actually, so my research is not in, in the acute stages. So that's on the clinical side. I do see people at different stages of of the disease acutely, um, and then as they recover after stroke. My research is uh, on post-stroke recovery that is not immediately, but months and then years after stroke as people still struggling to uh, as they're living with their um, functional deficits. So that's what my research is focused on, is on functional recovery uh, in chronic stages after stroke. So, okay. So uh, what happens after each of these two types of strokes? You know, you've been able to intervene at least to the point where you save the person's life. But what are some of the, what's the fallout from these two kinds, depending on severity? Right. So even, you know, some people get, get to have acute stroke treatment and they may have a reversal of their symptoms. They're, these are more fortunate, but uh, quite a few still remain with their uh, deficits, uh, weakness, uh, arm, leg, diminished abilities to perform activities of daily living. And the state of, of affairs that is such that many of them are going on and still suffering these uh, stroke effects years after. So your research is focused on now specifically what mitigating the permanent effects, um, improving the degree of recovery, like how would you uh, whittle down to what the heart of it is? Right. So we're looking and new methods of helping these people to regain the function after in chronic stages. For now, it's we're working on people in chronic stages after a stroke. So we're working with both upper extremities, so arm weakness, and we're um, we have studies that looking at enhancing walking abilities after stroke. So. At the same time as we're testing new methods of rehabilitation, we're also looking at the mechanisms of why um, are people uh, regaining function? Uh, what is happening in their brain? So what kind of structural and functional changes in the brain are happening that are associated with, um, with them being able to use their arm better, walk faster? Um, or walk in more coordinated way 
um, being more stable on their feet. What is it that is happening in the brain that allows them uh, to uh, have this uh, improved function? Well, what's what's most important to people that have had strokes? You know, I don't know if a lot of them have been asked, but which abilities do they most want to regain and which ones are they like, eh, I can live with it? Um, for most part, uh, motor deficits, so weakness, that uh, if someone is weak, uh, after stroke, it's usually on one side of the body. They uh, have problems with moving their arm and moving their leg. So if there is a significant severe weakness, then they need assistance with their everyday activities. If they can't walk, they will be only using wheelchair. They would need um, the help moving from one place to another. They would need help getting dressed being fed, uh, cooking for themselves, all that. Um, so I would say that weakness is probably most devastating problem that cause, that stroke can cause. But then also stroke can uh, impair your ability to communicate, right? So uh, people are not able to speak or don't understand what others are saying. And that's also pretty significant. You have sensory impairment uh, also is a problem, you know, feeling uh, numbness on one side of the body. Maybe if you compare numbness with the weakness, you can say that weakness is worse, but it all, uh, we need all our functions to uh, have complete life and abilities. So it's, you know, I've, I've had uh, numbness and weakness and things like that after like a surgery or two, and it's it's terrible, you know, no matter what it is. So I understand that uh, no right. handicaps are good and some are worse than the others. And right. I can imagine, uh, you know, inability to walk or, you know, I would think the inability to speak probably would be the most frustrating thing, but maybe that's not as, maybe it's just as bad as not being able to use your left arm or something like that. I don't know. Or right arm or your dominant arm. Um, well, well, I'm a lefty, but for me it's left, but I understand. <laughs> okay. I, I automatically assumed it. <laughs> Right. And, and, and it's hard to say that um, to people who say have only numbness and they say, look, you're fortunate. Uh, the only thing is um, is wrong with, with you right now is that you're numb. But it's really the function that you lost. And um, frequently that numbness also comes with pain. So not only that you can't feel, but you're feeling pain on the, the stroke affected side. So, yeah. Um, the best way to treat stroke is actually prevent it. Okay, so go I ahead. want to ask you, uh, we won't go into prevention very much, but um, you said some people's brains need to recover. Have you figured out any of the mechanisms by which they do that because of therapy or some other natural process that's not therapeutic? Yeah, so the fastest recovery is happening in the first few months after a stroke. Um, and that the level of recovery, many kind of studies looked at it from different ways. It's about 70% of recovery. If you, you know, looking at population as a whole and individuals, so the recovery is about 70%, not in everybody. And the mechanisms are different. So in the beginning, in the very first phases after, after stroke, uh, the brain kind of heals itself. And in the beginning, there is a lot of swelling. There is inflammation. 
Um, and that's similar if you think about if you if you have a, a sore on your in your muscle or in the skin, you know, initially it's swollen and painful and kind of red. So similar thing in the brain. So you you have swelling now in the first few weeks, the swelling will subside, and some of that function that was affected by swelling will recover. When there is a, actually injury to the brain that is responsible for a certain function, what might happen and what does happen is um, several things. One is that um, our brain is wired in very redundant way. There's um, not just one cell in the brain that's responsible for certain functions. So cells can switch function depending on their need. So adjacent areas in the brain may take over the function that was lost. And then just people completely recover their deficits. That usually happens with small strokes, pretty really pretty small. But then the injury is pretty big and extensive, um, again, because our brain is not just one spot that does everything, but rather a whole network, um, and not just one side, but left and right brain working together to perform a certain function, um, then other parts of that network may start playing a role in, in recovery. Um, and now, usually when that type of uh, recovery is happening, the complete restoration of function doesn't happen. You have uh, quite a bit of compensatory uh, behaviors when and the movement, although maybe really restored, but it's not perfect. So having said all that, um, even though we we don't see that there is a complete recovery when there is a significant injury to begin with, we don't really know what is possible because we've never, we really haven't pushed um, rehabilitation to go on indefinitely. So basically what, about, what I'm um, trying to say there, we don't know what the limits of recovery are. Sure. sure. Have, have you tried to correlate where in the head, which not only which vessel, but what part of which vessel correlates with what degree of damage and what degree of rehabilitation? I mean, different areas of the brain could be damaged, yeah. obviously. So my right arm versus I can't speak versus something else. So I would right. think there might be correlations in there if you map where they happen, what's affected, and how the rehab goes. Yes, uh, for sure. It, it depends on uh, what other, is it a, just a small area that's um, affected? Or you have, in addition to... Um, motor deficits, you also have sensory problems. So not only that you can't move, but you also can't feel uh, how your arm is moving. So recovery is more challenging. Um, and then some people may have this condition called neglect, where they, they're not fully aware of their deficit, or they have a vision problem and can't see their affected arm very well, or um, really struggling to pay attention to that. So the extent of recovery depends on where and how extensive the injury. So um, again, has there been a mapping? It sounds like there needs to be a wide-scale 
mapping of as many people as possible of, you know, what got blocked, where it was in the head, what the symptoms were because of that, what the effects were, um, and then what the rehab was like, and then what the recovery was like. Yeah, and we're, we're actually, we are trying to do that with brain imaging and with the neurophysiological studies to understand where where is the injury and uh, what is the trajectory of recovery. We don't quite understand um, how to use that information. We have we have made significant strides in in building this model of okay, well, if people have this problem, they most likely um, be able to recover this much. There have been some really nice work done by um, other scientists so that we can uh, have prognosis, provide prognosis to our patients of how much uh, recovery they will experience. But um, in chronic stages after stroke, um, it, it is important. I like that you're using the terminology mapping. It's exactly what we need to understand. It's not the function is not located in one area, but it really is a combination of the whole brain function. So uh, perhaps we need that to um, develop better methods of rehabilitation. And what's, what's the prevalence of different kinds of disability? Has that even been tracked? You know, in 10,000 strokes, uh, 34% had left arm yeah. weakness or 26% had this. Do we have stats on that even? We do have that. I believe there are about 30% of people with stroke have motor deficit. So that information is out there. All we need is to keep track. Uh, yeah, people have published on that. So we know the prevalence of these different, most prominent. So for weakness, yes. For sensory deficits, well, maybe not so much because it's not obvious. You have to test it well. Um, it probably, we are underestimating uh, how many people are living with sensory deficits after stroke. Um, language is easier to test so that we know I don't, uh, half off the top of my head, the exact numbers of how many people are suffering this aphasia, which is a language deficit. So yeah, the reason I ask is I figured this would inform you what areas to tackle. You know, look, do you an eighty twenty analysis? Look at either the most debilitating or the most prevalent, and go after that first. Right, and that's true. And motor rehabilitation uh, research uh, has gotten the most attention, but. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at, um, you know, study other problems that stroke can cause. So with one of my studies, I've been looking at sensory rehabilitation. And uh, not many people are looking at that. It, well, first of all, it's maybe not as critical problem. And two, it's more difficult to study it, um, of measuring sensory impairment. So... There are scientists who are uh, looking at language rehab or aphasia uh, therapy, speech therapy research, and uh, vision and neglect. But I would say that motor rehab is probably most represented. So why do you think that um, sensory rehabilitation hasn't gotten much interest versus motor? Do people feel like sensory is just impossible to fix? Not as important. 
Well, important to who? Yeah, is it, if the exactly. rehab's not happening, is it because patients aren't talking about it as much? Maybe patients feel like there's no hope in that arena, or is it just healthcare practitioners say, oh, that's probably too hard, forget it, let's just work on the easy stuff, which is maybe the motor stuff? Like, why do you think this is like that? I think it's too, uh, both. It's coming from, it, it's the uh, view that you can live and function. So we're, we're living in a very practical world, right? We, what, what is it that will prevent people from going to work? And that's more like you're being more, um, more expensive to take care of. And that's people who have, motor deficits. So there's more effort in therapy for motor deficits. With sensory, people can function, sometimes work, and live independently when they have sensory deficits. So that's kind of the the practical side. Um, And then there are some beautiful studies and approaches that have been done for sensory rehabilitation, but there have been only a few. It is more difficult to test it. Everybody's a little bit different, so it probably is, is more difficult to provide therapy for sensory as well. So, where do you want where do you want things to go? Where do you want to make the greatest impact in stroke rehabilitation? It was up to you solely. Where do you want to do? Uh, well, this is it's kind of an a twofold for me. One, we have demonstrated. Um, the group that I've been working with, we've demonstrated that in chronic stroke, the recovery is possible and it's meaningful, but it requires significant effort. So what I would like to see is that with new therapies, as we, well, we didn't discuss that I've been working on with brain stimulation, can we enhance it? Can we support and make it less expensive to deliver and to achieve positive outcomes for people in chronic stages after stroke. And the second, um, I'd like to uh, have impact on understanding the mechanism of recovery um, in chronic stages and in acute stages uh, so we can build on that, develop even better approaches to support rehabilitation interventions. I should have asked you, but what are what are some of the rehabilitations that you're working on specifically? I thought I did. I'm sorry. But go ahead. Tell uh, me about the brain stimulation and other things. Right. So we um, we're working. One of our studies is looking at the uh, transcranial direct current stimulation during their gait therapy. Um, so with the idea that having a non-invasive uh, electrical brain stimulation will allow perhaps faster and um, better gains in their gait performance. As we're looking at brain stimulation, we're looking at structural and functional brain changes during this rehabilitation so we can understand these mechanisms. And we use MRI for that. We use uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation to probe the brain um, function and follow it as um, our participants go through uh, therapy, kind of a in a nutshell of what we've been working on recently. Uh, we're also uh, we do have projects uh, for upper limb uh, rehab as well, 
and looking at ways to motivate rehabilitation with use of devices and while at the same time looking at brain plasticity and studying the mechanisms of recovery. I I would bet that the people that do the best with uh, stroke recovery are the most motivated, right? Or are there other factors that seem to, uh, to make it more successful for some versus others? Motivation is a big factor because uh, we can't do it for them. They really have to be part of it. They have to practice, and sometimes it's hard, and sometimes the practice uh, seems meaningless and tedious. Um, they don't see the immediate because the progress is very slow. They don't see the immediate result. So it's, it, it, it is quite difficult. It, it takes commitment, um, and it requires large doses of to achieve good results in chronic stages after stroke. You really have to put in uh, many, many, many hours to produce any meaningful results. Mm. Yeah, you know, I've recovered from simpler things, but what I've noticed is um, you'll work and work and work and things, nothing will happen, and all of a sudden your abilities jump up a little bit, and then it, it plateaus for a while, and then you work and work and work, and then all of a sudden things improve again. So I would bet stroke is probably similar. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and it really does require a lot of part of patience. And therapists need to guide them, but this is a very hard, and unfortunately, Many, many people expect that things will happen for them. You know, look, I still have a weakness in my arm or I'm still numb. And I have to tell them that it will require a lot of work to to get it better. And perhaps not for everybody, but for many, the improvements are possible. But they really have to work hard and long to achieve that. All right, very good. So what's the best way for people, listeners, to get in touch and find out more? So um, people can learn about our studies. Uh, we are part of Cleveland um, FES Center, and people can um, look our studies up on fescenter.org, also on clinicaltrials.gov, but I would say fescenter.org would be the best place to start. Okay. Well, very good. Um, last question, Svetlana. So what, uh, what does the future of stroke rehab look like? You know, what's your ideal vision for it over the next few years? I see that there is in, uh, continuous increase uh, interest in brain rehabilitation. I would like to see more of my colleagues, neurologists, being interested in rehabilitation. We need to really understand how rehabilitation is happening um, to move this field forward. So I'm already seeing there's increased interest in the field. So more people interested and more people studying it uh, will result in the success. But I would say in the future, we will be moving toward helping recovery using brain stimulation. And that will move from the lab to clinical practice. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Svetlana, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. This was a lot of fun. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, 
I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. FutureTech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.